to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. On this episode, I visit Sarka Guladia in her studio, which was filled up to the ceiling with materials for her sculptures. Born in India, Sarka often works with large objects that are labor-intensive to construct. Originally specializing in textiles, Sarka slowly shifted over to the art world and eventually got a fine arts degree at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she continues to live and work. She has exhibited in spaces such as the Mattress Factory and the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts. More recently, Sarika received the Carol R. Brown Emerging Artist Award and a Creative Development Grant, both given out by the Pittsburgh and Heinz Foundation. Sarika and I end up talking for quite a long time, with topics ranging from being a minority, westernizing oneself, and who gets the privilege to be called an international artist. I hope you enjoy this. Oh, perfect. So do I have to be this close? Or I'm, you can sit there if you want. Okay. Sit back. Okay. Whatever, whatever is most um, comfortable, comfortable for you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess let's start with just how are you doing? I am doing great. My kids have gone back to school. Yeah. So I think... Uh, as an artist, I'm ready to get back into the zone of working and kind of put them behind. <laughs> did you, did, were you not able to do much work this summer? I think it's challenging when the kids are around, like the things revolve around their schedule and uh, you do manage to work, but it's your mind is not 100% there. So it's kind of right. this push-pull. Were you worried when you... When you had kids that you won't you wouldn't have time to do your art? Oh, I think when I decided to have my daughter, I didn't even think about art. Uh no, I don't know if I I thought, you know, you'll manage. You manage. But I also come from a place where you have a lot of help. Uh and I was not I think I wasn't prepared for what I <laughs> what it entails to have kids yeah. in another country where you don't have a family structure to support you. Right. So so you thought you were prepared, but you weren't. Oh, yeah. I think you're never prepared. Yeah. Like even if I'm sure that people who've had kids here yeah. are never prepared. And I, I really commend artists who can take their kids to work and they can work along with them and they have the patience. I cannot. And I think you can see my studio is a little bit filled up and there's a lot of kind of dangerous objects around here. So yeah. um, I, I don't think the space lends itself. Right, right. So I guess, how did you manage? Oh, it was a challenge. And I think with my daughter for six months after I had her, um, actually, uh, rewind. Uh, when I had her, I had a show at the mattress factory three weeks after giving birth. When was this? 2000? This was in 2007. Okay. So, and it was a challenge because I had these huge bronze aluminum uh, and aluminum sculptures uh, that I had to deliver, which I could not really lift. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was breastfeeding my daughter. So I had to be back home at a certain time. But I am one of those people who once I start working, everything else kind of fades away. Fades away. Yeah. 
So I remember I left at eight o'clock and I said, I'll be back home in a couple of hours. I did not come home till seven or eight in the evening and mm-hmm. I was covered in red chili pepper. Oh no. So I had to like kind of clean up, clean up yeah, before I yeah. could even touch her. And, uh, and it was, I think that was a challenge. And yeah. I, after that, I think, uh, I kind of, uh, I think your first kid is you remember everything that they did because everything is so hard and you're getting into that zone. Yeah. And, and uh, special too. And it is special. And I think with the second one, you know, it'll end. With the first one, you feel, oh my God, is this my life? Because I can, um. I can, I can stay up all night working, but I found it really hard that you had to stay up to feed mm. a kid. So there's like a, like, it's like a different thing because that's not a choice. You're sleepy but you have to do it. Yeah. So it was, those were challenges, but I think they were beautiful challenges and I'm glad they are over Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at the same time. And I think uh, six months after I had her, I was like really itchy because I'm the kind of person who needs to be constantly working. And my mom, I had a studio at home above the garage at that point. And she said, why don't you just go and do something? And I'm like, would it like do what? Like just go and work. Okay. Like even if nothing comes, just go and sit in that room. Like make, yeah. get back into your routine because you need to. And I went up to my studio and I was like, I don't know what to do because I'm a sculptor. And I'm like, oh, I can't do this. And I always, I think I put a lot of restraints on my own self because I wanted to, I can't do a half-hearted job and it has to be perfect in yeah. whichever which way in my mind. And I think I started, uh, so I started painting and I'm not really, I don't consider myself a painter, but I think that's like, I think it's an amazing, like, I feel it's like a gift that I can just go and splash color. And it really helps me kind of generate ideas for what I want to do for my sculptures or installation. Mm. And I call it my sketch pad or thinking pad. Yeah. We don't show these paintings. I have never shown these okay, paintings, okay. but they do from my house. They do sell yeah. because people seem to like them and they, and they, they hang on the wall and they hang. <laughs> yeah. They hang on the wall and they can visualize where, what it'll look like. And then it also helps me get uh, to do what I really want to do because mm-hmm. I can use that money to do yeah. projects that are really not, nobody is interested in buying. Right, right, right. Just because of the nature and the content. Yeah. Of I mean, them. it's funny. I think the advice your mom gave is, something I had to learn on my own, but just uh, forcing yourself to go to the studio even when nothing's happening. Absolutely. At least for me, that's been helpful because, you know, I always call it like, it's my, uh, you have to put on your worker's cap. Absolutely. And I think it makes a difference when you formally exit. But I have to say that, uh, so I did that for almost- And if you have the privilege to do that. Yes, it is a privilege. I absolutely agree with that because- So 2007, she was born and then, you know, the daycare, whatever started. And I used to work in my studio space, which was within my house. And I had to really have the discipline to say that I will not uh, attend calls. I will not think of doing the laundry. (laughs) I will not, if somebody invites me for lunch, I will not do that. But I think it was very, very challenging. Like no matter how much I disciplined myself and... And then my work became, even my canvases became so large that they could not go up the steps. So I think my husband was by then, like, he was like, I think you need to find a space. Find a space, yeah. Because I had like, even now the garage is full of my stuff. And it was just, you can imagine, you can look at my space and see what I had done there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's when I started looking for a space and I have to... 
say that having a space outside of the house was the best thing ever for me because it helped me just disconnect it helped me focus on what i wanted to do yeah. and uh, and i'm a very anal retentive neat person at home so when i'm like if i clean up i have to clean up yeah. and that i think was coming in the way of me working because when i work i i have a organ even though my studio looks crowded there's a system to the chaos uh, yeah and but i know that i can make a mess here and i can leave it if i have to run out i can leave it and come back to it tomorrow right and i think that i didn't give myself that freedom at home mm. so it was great to have a space yeah yeah and i think also as artists we are like lonely people for the lack of a better word you work alone in solitary uh so you need even if it's like going down to the co-op and seeing the same face or getting a coffee and exchanging a few words i think it's important yeah and being in this building which was much more ener- energetic at that time with more artists mm-hmm. was great because then you had this interaction and yeah. i remember that i applied after i came here i would apply for shows and stuff and i wouldn't get anything and i was like oh and then i realized that nobody knows what my capabilities are mm-hmm. because they have not heard from me in a while what do you mean heard from you because i was like silent i was working silently okay. for those 7 years and i'm doing these paintings yeah. but i'm proposing these installations and they thought of you as a painter i don't think they thought of me as anything okay. like i think i had lost my identity in some ways that's interesting as yeah. an artist because uh-huh. like and i think uh, so i had to kind of rebuild it i was like uh, like i was like oh my god i exhibited at the mattress factory i had this great show i know i have the potential to do things but then i realized people need to see that you have the potential to do mm. things and again it's a luxury because i started working and building these sculptures i was doing paintings for a while it wasn't really moving anywhere i was just doing things and i think even at that time when it was like really half baked stuff i had like i had eric shiner come in for a studio, studio visit, visit yeah. and i think it was great because some of the things he said like and i think these studio visits for an artist are an important i they are very important and i don't know if the curators realize what they are saying is impacting the artist or not but there are certain things that are left here and there and they do have an impact on mm-hmm. you yeah. and i think uh, and that time i mind you had only paintings here which i am not a painter but i had this room full of paintings and couple of like weird installations with mm. like these wall installations with nails and drilled holes and that's what eric was seeing that's what he was seeing what did you what did he say no he gave like he he's a really nice person yeah, <laughs> like yeah. if you've ever met him yeah yeah and he was like this is great and you should push this mm-hmm. a little bit more and you should and i'm sure he i don't know what he walked out of <laughs> at that point and because like my work has evolved so much yeah from that point onwards and also my studio is a different place now so that i think that was like i felt that was like a turning clock because i even if i would tell people oh i plan to do hundred of these they were like okay like they don't know you are capable of doing the hundred right right and so the first steps always the hardest cuz the first step exactly people haven't seen what a prior iteration looked like right? absolutely so then i started and i think uh, in 2012 i moved into this space in 2013 and 2012 i had a life threatening drug reaction mm-hmm. to sulfasalazine which i'm allergic to and it what was is that sulfasalazine is a sulfa drug i am allergic to sulfa 
I had bilateral tendonitis because of the mushrooms, you know, because I don't have the discipline to stop working and take mm. rest. So I got this severe bilateral tendonitis and it was always in the way of my work. So, uh, and, and it still is. So that's why I work on multiple ideas at the same time, because then I'm not using my hand in the same way. Right. You're taking different breaks from each, each. Action. Exactly. Yeah. And, but at the same time I'm working because I am on a, on a clock. I have to work from this time to this time because then I have my kids to pick up mm-hmm. and you have to get back into the routine of a mom, yeah. mom life. Yeah. So I think I had to le- kind of learn to discipline and it was very annoying because earlier I was told put a five minute alarm and take a break. So I used to do that and I'm like, I, you only could work in five minute increments? Pretty much. Wow. So, but it was annoying because you, by the time you really get Somewhere. Somewhere you are taking a break again. So that's why I started on these multiple Mm. projects, which are not only multiple in terms of their, the nature and the, you know, the way uh, I think the way I'm executing them is also very different. Like Mm -hmm. drilling is a different action than pushing pins is a different action than um, sculpting something. So I think that was like, you know, I think each artist kind of learns and evolves uh, based on what they're, body permits them and but that drug reaction really had an impact on me because I was on really high doses of steroids like 120 mg so I was cuckoo for the lack of a better word and I would be talking to you nicely one minute and I would have a flip moment the next wow and I had uh, maybe I had control but I don't think I had any control over my emotions yeah and uh, but I uh, but I knew where to do, where mm-hmm. where I could push it and where I needed to kind of restrain myself. And uh, so one of the things that really started annoying me is I had little kids, so a ton of toys. And uh, I think those toys and that, like just the, the excesses in life really became, I think when you've gone through like almost like this dying experience, you go through this thing of realizing what really is important. Mm. And I think at that point, everything that was, I could like just have scared less about any, anything material, anything that needed to exist. And, uh, my kids toys used to annoy me. So I'm like, like you step on them and, uh, no, they would be like, they would play. And, and I was like, you know, you got to clean up. Otherwise these are going to my studio. And they actually did start coming here. And I started, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. And then I just started assembling them with found objects. That was the sculpture that was painted The, the white ones, yeah. right. So I Were started. Were kids pissed? Uh, I think they did not realize it till they came for an <laughs> opening. So after a long time, I entered into a show and I joined the Society of Sculptors back. And my, uh, this radiator piece, which is untitled too, was in the show. And they came in and they're like looking at this piece. Of course, it's painted white. And they're like, oh, oh you put it here. But we used to still play with it. <laughs> so they were they're like upset. a little bit, uh, they were a little bit, but I won an award or something for that. So they were happy that I won the award because of their piece. So it was like a... But I think that started with, and I just kept making those. And I remember I was working on them outside and somebody walked up and said, are you in a show? I'm like, no. So they're like, why are you working on these sculptures? I'm like, to get a show. Mm. I'm like, you have to have a body of work to have a voice. And if you don't have that, then no matter what you submit has no value because people need to see something. Yeah. And, you know, to have confidence in what they are going to put out there. Yeah. And ideally... You're also making 
whether you have a show or not. I, right. I mean, I mean, like, right. Best case scenario, if you know, if you got enough success that you're constantly working, and then these, the work that you're doing has a destination in mind. Right. But, you know, every artist's career is like an ebb and flow. Absolutely. And so there are times where you won't have a show, and you just got to work. And I think that's the best time that I think really interesting work comes out because when you have a show, then you're very conscious of the audience, maybe. Mm -hmm. And you are really defining it to that. But like there are times when, you know, other ideas are spilling out and you can just sit and experiment with right, them. Right. And I think so one thing like a lot of people were like, oh, you need to like kind of hone in on a material. And, you know, that's like often said. And I am like. So to give a little bit background of myself, I have a bachelor's in textiles and a master's in textiles. Both and when I came, getting, both from India. Both in India. Okay. And uh, so when I came here, I I was working in the fashion industry. I was forecasting fashion trends. So I had a very high paced life in New York. And when I came to Pittsburgh, I was like, uh, there's really nothing to do for me. <laughs> and I, I'm like, oh, I'll get a job in textiles. But there was nothing similar to what I was used to. And I think... I had always had this desire to create stuff and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe this is the time that you break it and start afresh because I felt that I had, I could like close my eyes and tell you what's going to be in five years from now. And uh, it had lost that challenge bit. Hmm. I what's, think it would have been like, uh, like a, what, what would you call it? Like a line that is like a dead line, yeah. which is like stationary. The, I think the phrase is, uh, you see your future um, pass by you, right? Kind of. Yeah. Right. And uh, so, so I decided to apply and uh, there was the MFA and the BFA. I think the MFA applications were done because they are earlier and the BFA applications were also done. Mm -hmm. There was a week left and I called them. And of course, for 50 bucks, it was fine for me to send. And I said, I just got to know about this. I'm interested. Can I? And I went and I saw the program at Pitt and CMU. And I really connected with what I saw at CMU for some mm -hmm. reason. I think I was meant to be there. Yeah. And I uh, so I applied and then I had a portfolio review. And I was like, I don't have much of a portfolio here. And this whatever what I year, had. This is what year? This is in 2004, I think. Okay. And I had a very limited, like I had some stuff and I put it together, went for the, and then I got the fat letter. And at each stage I was like, should I do it? And my husband was like, he never pushed me, but he pushed me in a very smart way. He's like, let's pay for this and you can see, let's do this and you can yeah. see. And I think that was, and I remember when I walked into school, I was with 18 year old kids. <laughs> how, and I am, How old were you then? I was 32. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> so just imagine like, and so people are like, oh, wow, you're so lucky. Your parents let you do art. Like all of the Indian kids would come up to me because. Oh, the students. All the, the eight, students. 18 year, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it 18? Like the. Yeah. So I was a freshman. And I call, I remember calling Amit from CMU and saying, I don't know. I'm like, I'm like with these kids. So he's like, give it six months. If you don't like it, you can walk away. Yeah. Then, because I think six months is that, that's why I call six months the test of time. Yeah. And it was, I think for me, it was amazing. I loved it because I wish, and I'm glad I didn't do a master's because if I had done a master's, I might have like just stuck to a medium. I just had the freedom. I learned new things, which I would never have had the opportunity to do. And I just went all crazy. With you it. did all four years. I, uh, so I did it in two years, two years, but I was that because annoying. You, you, you took, you took the credits from your yes. VA and, right. and MA. Right. Yeah. 
So, but it was amazing because I could experiment. Like, so if I wanted to, and I remember uh, we used to have Ron, who was the head of the foundry at that time, because CMU had a foundry. And he's like, oh, we have to make a bronze sculpture. And I said, oh, I'm going to make these bronze, you know, I plan to do a bronze mushroom bed and I'll do it. And, And he's like, sure, because everybody says it. But then I started doing it. Yeah. So we had 30 of these ginormous. Bronze things. 15, uh, 16 of bronze and 15 of aluminum. Wow. And I'm sure like, and like, how'd I don't you, think how'd anybody. How did you get that much material? That's the, It wasn't that expensive, let's say, to get it at that time. But really? like the school arranged it for oh, you. Hmm. So, and like, you know, the foundry was like you were already paying for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So you, there was enough tuition to yeah, take you, care of you, stuff. And it's, it, yeah, it seemed like the way you treated it was basically like an MFA, right? Two kind year, of. Two years. Right. Did you connect with the grad students or? I uh, kind of, I would meet them and I became friends with one of the, fa- like some of the faculty. Mm-hmm. But like, I think I always kept a little bit of a distance because I was also, I think when you are, I don't know, uh, when you come from another, when you migrate, Right. You have this sense of dislocation or displacement. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have this thing where you're mixing in with people. Right. So but there's like always that you don't know if it's okay to do this. And Mm -hmm. I came from a culture where the teacher is king. Right. So if they would say it's night, I would say, yes, it's night. Even though it's day. Right. Hmm. And here, like, so it was very interesting for me to see that people challenge faculty and disagree with it. And I, it took me a long time. I don't think I ever did that still. I always have like that. I still, if I were to meet any of them, I always have this attitude that Mm. I need to ask them. And I like, you know, they have a, they have a more they have a bigger voice or they have a voice, more powerful voice. Right, right. So it's like a sub whatever kind of culture that you, you know, whatever you want, however you want to put it. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I'm learning that, you know, like it's changed, obviously. Now I've been here 16 years. Yeah. So a lot has changed and I have my kids here who have a different attitude all together, right? Yeah, well, they're internalizing immediately all the different ways of interacting and social cues and all those Probably. I don't know because they don't talk about it. How old are they? They are eleven and eight. Oh well, they would. Well, they won't talk about it because it's, natu- it's, it's, it's natural to them. It just, it just, right. It just is. There isn't, there isn't something for them to compare to. Absolutely, right? and that's a very interesting thing you say because I did not realize this till a curator friend of mine pointed out to me mm-hmm. that because I am like a tiger mom in some ways, and I you, you would call yourself a tiger mom. I'm like trying to like back. <laughs> away from it a little bit but I am like you know you have to do it you have to like so they had a recital and I said that was terrible yeah because they had these Asian students who are amazing there and I'm like these two were like but they just started learning so a friend of mine said that you have to base your comments on your kids based on how much time they are spending on the activity and when they started learning you can't compare them to somebody who's been learning from age two yeah And that was a very interesting perspective. But this curator friend of mine said that, you know, your kids go through enough being who they are and with their identity and you should be a safe place. Mm. So don't be that critical. And I think that like made me register things differently because, yes, I grew up in a society where I looked like everyone else. And I'm sure they are very, very conscious of the way that they are different. Right. One of the comments was by an Indian friend of mine, Uh but the other one the one who told me that your kids 
anyway go through a lot looking different was yeah. she's like a white curator yeah yeah and i really like i was like thank you for that yeah because you made me see something that i was totally blind to yeah yeah so i think those like it's it's i think it's important to talk to different people because you get these different perspectives and it helps you not only navigate your work but also navigate your kids yeah yeah because it's it's a it's different right yeah i mean have they been back to india they we travel we okay. take them every year so my daughter when she sat on the airplane for the first time traveling to india there that? were there were like a lot of indians so she's like mama everybody here looks like nani nani is grandmother uh-huh. she's like everybody looks like it's like she had i think they had never seen yeah. and like it wasn't everybody but like there was a yeah. majority yeah. and i think they had never seen that like you know that a majority of yeah. which is interesting which was an interesting observation yeah it's so, i mean it's it's something i think when you first experience it it's sort of um strange and empowering at the same time right. you know i think i remember that when i first went to hong kong right and everyone was my height right i i go into subway and everyone's my height and i see all these faces that you know all these chinese faces or asian right. faces that look similar to me and it was like a strange um you felt like you belong i don't know if belongs the right word but it uh that there you know yeah. you you just immediately notice that your relationship to the environment is different you know what right, i mean right right um but it's still not. i'm still i'm still an outsider i'm sort of That's like i'm still like your say. kids like right. if your kids go back to india they will notice it but they might not they're not a part of they're the not system. part of it but they right. they also recognize they are a part because they suddenly realize right that everyone around them looks like them which right. is a, which is something you don't really get to experience oftentimes when you're in when you've immigrated somewhere else right and and the other interesting thing is that when they are outsiders like you said because and i think to some extent i am also an outsider because when you are a diasporic artist yeah. you really belong nowhere yeah <laughs> or you belong everywhere it's yeah. how you want to perceive it yeah but it's a very strange thing because when you go there people know you are not from there yeah yeah and i'm like i can speak hindi perfectly but they just know i think it's something in your action that they know you've yeah. come from outside and with my kids of course they have a accent in their hindi so when they speak hindi which my only my daughter speaks and very little but when she speaks in hindi then everybody is commenting on the accent so that puts her off from speaking in it mm-hmm. yeah. so that because they know they are not really yeah they don't like they are not really from there but yeah. i think I have to say that the new I don't know probably when your parents moved it was much more insular the society but I don't which which part like moving to America you to mean? moving to America mm. was it like a little bit more like difficult more I don't know difficult as a word or different growing up for you where you were uh yes and no because I uh grew up for the first part of my life in New York City right and I went to a magnet school in New York which was able to get a pretty diverse group of kids. Right. Um it was like 40 kids and you know when I look back it's it was it was sort of Why like a you? melting pot, right. you know. So we live in Squirrel Hill and I think I really wanted to live in Squirrel Hill because I feel it's like a melting pot of sorts. There are a lot of people you still see and they went to the JCC and for the longest time my kid thought she's jewish then she thought she's then she went to catholic school so she thought we are christians because i just we 
embrace everything. But I think at JCC, the one of the greatest greatest things was that when you stood there, you heard multiple accents. Mm. And I think it was. But having said that, I think the first time I took her to a you can call it a cultural Sunday camp, mm-hmm. equivalent to a Sunday school, but it's more cultural, culture based. And so I took them, and they are like, "Wow, there are more people who look like you guys and have kids that are like us." She's like, "There are all of these." Like in India, you don't call anybody by name, any adult. So all these uncles and aunties, mm-hmm. because everybody is an uncle and auntie, mm-hmm. they all look, they look like you guys and all the kids are like us. So like, because they know that there is a difference and I think they recognize it, that there is a difference between them and me. Mm-hmm. And now the interesting thing is that uh, whenever I'm saying something, they start imitating my accent mm-hmm. and I... I was la- a friend of mine was laughing at me yesterday because I said I don't think I have that much of an accent and she started laughing and I'm like do I she so she's like not as strong as you do and I'm like from my kids perspective of course I have it yeah and there are sa- certain words the way we yeah. emphasize it's the second syllable versus the first so yeah. it just sounds different yeah yeah I think uh, I think just like getting back to the work part of it like just getting a space outside really help focus for me on the work mm-hmm. and uh and i don't know i've lost my chain of thought no like why i asked you that question yeah. in the first place well, let's let's just uh go back a little bit so you were born in india mm-hmm. and how, did you know that you wanted to do art when you were a kid how did how did you fall into art or textiles so i th- um well I was born in India and raised there and my dad was in the air force so we used to travel all the time and I really like I think my innermost desire was always like I would see all these kids taking art classes and I was like it was kind of a luxury when you're in the defense services uh, you don't have that much uh, like I don't think you have that surplus income so you can you can't these are some of these things are luxuries right yeah. and uh, so I could never like I used to always have this desire to go to an art school or study art but it, i never really did it like yeah. that i did it in my free time um and uh, then i think i wanted to be a physician because i said that's the thing to do and i have no idea what flip happened in 11th grade and i was like i'm going into textiles mm-hmm. and it's uh, funny because my uh, my mother's dad was uh, in the textile industry and he was very well known uh for his textiles mm-hmm. uh, and textile design. So it was funny because I went into weaving. I went into a totally different line and uh, I think it was phenomenal because through that I traveled to rural India. I was very fortunate because uh, so I lost my dad at 19. I uh, which was not fortunate, but like so I lost my dad at 19. I was still in school in college. And then I went to this other school which specialized in textile design. And it was very, it was one of those like, you know, 30 kids out of, I don't know how many, Mm -hmm. 30,000 who apply or how many ever Mm -hmm. apply. But uh, so it was a prestigious place to get in. And it was an amazing, I think, experience at that point in time. Because uh, after that, I decided to work with the rural arts and crafts, which here crafts are thought of as hobbies, but Mm -hmm. there it's like working with the, the grassroots workers and like trying to revive their dying traditional, you know, textiles. And it was a phenomenal experience because, you know, I was young. I was in my 20s. You went to these villages. You lived 
in places, some of which had no electricity and no water. So it was challenging and hard, but at the same time, and, and also you went there, you were 20 year old and telling these 40, 50 year olds to do what you thought was right and would make their work better. And they didn't want to listen to you really. How did you, how were you given permission to enter these spaces? So I worked through an organization uh-huh. called Dastakar and yeah. I really like give a lot of credit to them. And uh, so they work with a lot of these uh, weavers in rural India and the whole the whole system is to make them sustainable. So you give them a capital, but they have to, it's like a revolving mm. capital scheme. So they can't, so they have to kind of keep generating and expanding out of that. And, uh, and then they provide these services where they send textile designers, weavers, like, you know, uh, to help them or artists to help them kind of improve, to improve the product. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of what was happening in India in the rural, uh, like Bihar, one of the places that I went was that uh, instead of using the tech, the, the yarn, that was the hand spun yarn, it was thigh reeled at that point. But anyway, the, the silk, they had started using the Chinese silk Mm -hmm. and it was cheaper it was easy to put much more on it and it was quicker. But then the end product was not the same mm. as what they started out with. So it was a challenge to go back into that and then to like, you know, I think when you are living in these uh, like really kind of dry areas where there's nothing to life, color becomes an aspect. And so mm. the colors they started using were really hideous. Well, what would you say the color of the environment like just it was like just like the color of the environment and also the lifestyle it's like very brown yeah. and dull is uh, yeah and uh, rustic and i think now i would go back and appreciate it you yeah, know what i mean yeah. but at that point like so but when you are living i think in that environment people do not appreciate it so uh, like coming from the city it was really fascinating for me but for people who were living in it i think their way to life is through color So they had started using these synthetic colors, which really didn't go with the kind of silk and the kind of work that they were doing. Mm. Like there is a place and a time for everything. Like the, like the mill made yarn is great, but it's for a certain purpose. So you have to kind of really know what fits in where. And I remember when I first told them to do these things, they were like, uh, no, nobody will buy it. I said, you know, I'll buy everything. I had nothing. I used to earn $50 a month, probably or less. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll buy the whole thing. Don't worry about it if it doesn't sell. And they did it. And I, and I think you also form a relationship, right? You go there, you are living with them. They are afraid of, not even afraid. They are like wondering what you 20 year old thinks you're doing here. And then you become like, you know, you form a bond with them. They become like your extended relatives. Right. And that's how, and I think uh, because I didn't have uh, my dad, I think in every place that I would go to, because some of these places were very dangerous, I would identify a figure who I thought for me spiritually was sent by my dad to take care of me. Mm. And I think that just gave me the confidence to be in any situation. And I was like, I can handle it because he is there. And, uh, and it was an, I think it was amazing. Like I did that for maybe two or three years. And then I went to England and did an apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeship with, uh, Peter Collingwood, who was a master weaver and he's very well known and he used to do textile installations. And when he came to NIFT and spoke, uh, that's the school that I went to, he had come and, you know, uh, some of us were there and he spoke about, 
uh, how he has how he shifts the warp. So the warp is usually static on the on a textile, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, because the warp is what the warp is like the the what comes out of the what you weave into. Okay. So it's always like it's static. Okay. And it's perpendicular. But I think what he had done is the reed, which is like a comb through which each thread comes out. Mm-hmm. He had found a system where you could cut it and you could shift it. So you could shift your warp. You could put in whatever you wanted and then you could make the textile three-dimensional and I think that was my first experience a I'd never traveled abroad and I got this internship with him and another lady in England so I went there for the first time I traveled on my own I think I was 20 something so I was not that young but and I went and I lived with him for three months and I learned this technique and it Mm. was I think it was a it was amazing experience for me in all sorts of ways because when I went there, he's like, uh, okay, so for weaving, can you just cut these rods? And I had to use a handsaw and I had never used, like in, like, I had never used any, any tools. So someone else would be cutting it. In, in yes, here. because if you want a painting hung, you call the carpenter and he comes and hangs it. You don't put a nail, you don't hammer a nail why, in. Why not? Because they, I think, I, I think there's a two way thing. One, you don't do it. Because uh, you give somebody else employment. Hmm. So I think there is a cycle. Like, you hmm. know, things are not like things that you can do now. I'm like, oh, you could take five minutes to do that. But everybody is waiting for that guy to come and fix it. But I think it's also, it keeps the economy. This, it, is, this, 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 this idea is internalized in everyone. In India. I think so. Hmm. I think it's an internalized idea. Like a lot of people who come from there cannot do anything around their houses because it's such a concept of like, they've never done handiwork. So, mm. so and but, that sort of relates. I- IKEA is going to India, right? It is. I, I remember reading up. I think one of the things they were talking about being trying to be successful there is constructing the furniture for them. Absolutely, because nobody is going to do it. Yeah. Trust me. So, so when he told me to saw, like I start, I'm like, okay, I've seen it in the movies. <laughs> so I'm like, doing, and he was like, stop. And I was like, what? What did I do wrong? And he's like, you've never used that, have you? I'm like, no. He's like, you have to hold it like this. And this is the movement. Yeah. So it was, I think that, I think going to England and like living on my own was like an amazing experience. And that's, but when I came back, I knew I couldn't sustain the village life anymore. Because Mm. once you've lived in the lap of like extreme Western luxury in some forms, I think going back to... Some of the, like, it was tough. I'm not going to, like, I was disordered. When I would come back to Delhi, I was like, it would take me 15 to 20 days to settle into a city life. Mm-hmm. And by then I was back to some other, mm. I was shipping myself back to another remote part of India. Mm. But I think I learned a lot from that. Like, that's like, it was a very satisfying experience in many aspects, because not only was it amazing to travel, mm-hmm. And uh, live in all these places, but it was amazing that you helped somebody. I think that there was a community aspect to it, which if and and uh, in, in London, in India, when oh, I India. traveled okay. into the villages, and I think if I were to relate it to how, like you would call it a residency here, but I never called it a residency, and I'm like, oh, maybe I need to fix my resume because <laughs> I had all these residencies, right? Yeah. But it was an amazing, like it was. I think you should call them residencies. I, I mean, should. I mean. I know artists who have residencies in their car. Right. And then they'll call it that and, you know. No, and I I think you have to use the right vocabulary because when you don't use it, 
yeah uh nobody else is going to right put it for you right. and and i think that was another thing because my resume had art like crafts and then this person who was reviewing they used to have this amazing lady who helped the art students uh with their resumes and she's in like Delhi. in uh, in cmu okay. at cmu and she is reading my resume and said so uh, arts and crafts were you doing hobby things and i'm like no yeah and then i realized that you know you have to sell yourself you have to sell yourself and your language has to fit the culture you are in mm-hmm. because where i am the same thing is called very different mm-hmm. than what it is called back in india right so you have to like change your language based on where you are yeah. and just talking to you right now i'm like oh those were residencies and i have said <laughs> i've never done a residency but they was i've done multiple residencies maybe not in art but in textiles yeah but that i think uh, i i think that shift is very important to make for people who migrate because i think it's taken me a long time to really f- i feel like i'm still kind of learning the ropes of how to how to navigate things right right uh because some of the things i will not instinctively do because it's against my grain yeah but it's done here and then i learn and i'm like oh you can do that <laughs> so you learn from those things right do you think you do you ever fear of losing yourself by continuing to transform uh, no i think i don't think i'll lose myself but you evolve yeah so i think and, and i think that evolution is great and i think when you're coming from two places I, it's a different experience because you can take the best of both right. and you see the negatives in both so you can discard that so i think it's a great place to be uh, i only i only ask that because i ask that because sometimes i do see artists who you know who migrate into the western world and then they see that as the equation to success and so they internalize everything western and basically become a western artist. Right. You you oftentimes a lot of um you know, you look at a lot of famous artists, international artists, and more often than not if they're coming from Asian, the oriental, right? I mean everything east of Europe basically. Most of them when you look at their resume, they study in London, they study in the US, they got their MA or BA in those western countries and then either went back to their country or stayed in the US and then used their cultural identity but reshaped specifically for a western audience. That's very well know? put. And but- and and I think there's no right answer, but I often oftentimes I think about like is there a loss I, you know that that shift that evolution happens so slowly that right. a lot of times I think I do wonder is that shift I'm not better for worse but like are they conscious enough of that shift to the point where they're realizing they've basically internalized so much that they become a product of western culture that's a very you interesting know? point you make because if you do look at the successful artists who are considered successful they have uh, a market share that are represented by western galleries absolutely they have to fit into the western norm yeah right yeah. and uh, at so, so one like so well i studied art here but the interesting thing was that i had a studio visit once with i think i had told you about this and um with uh, like college students and college students they were college students they were doing studio visits okay. in the building and uh, the faculty who brought them there said oh wow your work has become really westernized mm-hmm. americanized sorry not westernized and i sort of the same right and i am like looking at her 
and i said i said i've never worked anywhere else yeah this is my work right yeah and it was a very interesting thing because that's when i realized that people don't even they've never come into my space but they hear me and they see me mm-hmm. and they have a visual of what my work should be mm. and when it doesn't fit that i don't know what then then i am emulating something mm-hmm. or i don't I, so i find that like very disturbing because and i think that refers back to a lot of times like i'm like oh so people don't want to say the chinese boy the indian girl because it's supposed to be racist to say like give people those labels mm-hmm. and and i have no problem saying that because i am indian yeah. and i am you know proud of where i come from and i think i that's how i refer to people and yeah. i realized that because of again a school incident with one of my kids where he called he asked a kid are you mexican and i got a call that you know he called a kid mexican i'm like it's not an abuse you know it's and then i was like okay you can cannot it's it's supposed to not be okay to call yeah. people by their but, uh, but he was asking he, he was asking he was asking he was asking but it was like an interesting thing to notice that yeah. people are so aware of that but i'm like where does that awareness vanish when you walk into my space and expect my work to be indian where does that yeah. uh, where does that awareness and uh, that uh, whatever ethical thing vanish when you expect that you don't make me fit in yeah. to the galleries and the museums or yeah. anywhere because my work does not represent where i come from and yeah. i find that extremely problematic and i find that more racist mm-hmm. than anybody given labels yeah. of where they come from so yeah. i have like it's a very interesting and i was really so i'd written this poem about race yeah. um on which kind of i'm like you know you want professions to be identified based on races so whenever i'm like i'm an artist they're like oh most indians are not artists they are either physicians or engineers mm-hmm. or so you have these identity biases that already exist in society yeah. but within those subcultures you expect it to be a certain way yeah. so if i'm an artist i should be making gods and goddesses or you know doing something which comes from india yeah having gourds yes uh, so it it is like a very interesting thing and i think also I, i don't know how it's reflected in india because i haven't shown there till now and i haven't in? i would love to because i think there is a validation that you want back from your and i don't know if it's a validation or if it's i think to succeed in the west and i'm going to say it blatantly how it is is that if i want to be successful here i need to have a presence there because then i become international mm-hmm. and uh, otherwise i just remain like a and or maybe you don't because a lot of times international just means showing the us and europe that is true too because right. I, and that's a very interesting so on our retreat at the not white collective we had a conversation about what does it mean to be international and if all of us sitting there who were all from other parts of the world consider ourselves international and none of us think we are international because the international label belongs to the white mm-hmm. like it's a very interesting way because like if you have traveled as a white man to different parts of the world you are suddenly international mm-hmm. but the people who are international or don't own it or who who are who have actually uprooted their lives and immigrated or not are not yeah right so i find that like it's a very interesting like and it was interesting because we were and i asked my kids i said do you think i said let me ask them this question and see yeah. what they come up with and i said uh, do you think i'm international so they're like 
Well, not really, because you are American, but you gave up your citizenship to become American. But you come from India, so you are both Indian and American. But and they went into this whole other thing. Yeah, they were like kind of speaking out their thought process. Right, and yeah. I wanted to hear that because I'm like, have they thought that they are international? But like, I'm sure that if you are white and you travel to any part of the world, you are international. Mm-hmm. So, what does it mean to be international? Is that a label that just belongs? to a certain group of people or does it shift i don't know yeah it's uh it's something that i'm like thinking about yeah yeah right i so. don't think i ever thought about i mean just i guess us talking about it, i guess i never thought about people who've immigrated to other countries as international but they are right in a sense but they don't consider they don't consider well they don't well it also could be maybe it all comes down to privilege and choice right, right? you're inter- right. you you choose to be international because you've got the means and privilege to go to other places right out of your um sort of luxury want privilege wanting of going to places versus a need to maybe right i don't sure. know i don't even know if that like you know you could like you could travel widely but you still may not think you are international yeah yeah but you that's could a, that's interesting idea. but a lot of people like so there was like a facebook post uh, a friend of mine had written and he uh, and he was talking about how you know he's international and there's national and and i was like thinking that you are not really international What? in my mind i was like internalizing he was and another indian uh no he's like a caucasian okay guy like and he, so I, was, and he was saying he was international yeah he was talking about him being international and something and uh, strange <laughs> and and i was like but that is the that is the perception right mm-hmm. if you think international you are international yeah. but the problem is that the international really don't think in, that they are international yeah because they are who they are yeah so it's uh, but like going back to like the presence of like your work i think the west will validate your work if you have a presence there because then they know which box to put you in yeah but then i don't want to be boxed yeah so is that that's a problem from both sides because then uh like from the south asian uh community you face the thing that you want to be white that's why you don't want to be boxed yeah colorism colorism absolutely but i'm like none of us should be boxed we should all be there like you know it's like uh, so what are these so i've been also thinking a lot about what is my identity because my identity shifts right i'm here when i'm talking to you i'm an artist talking to you when i go home i'm a mother mm-hmm. so i have these many kind of identities and i kind of flow through them when i talk to my indian friends my maybe my way of talking shifts i my identity shifts yeah. and then when i'm talking to somebody else my identity shifts and yeah. and i think i'm as as a person as a migrant you are very conscious and i can confidently speak of most people but i won't want to take that of people who've immigrated uh, like of people who've migrated to that you are always trying to fit in yeah right you will please you are the appeaser yeah. you want to fit in you want to do the right thing right well you're learning how to code switch in a place where you are the minority and you're forced to code switch right right i think i was listening to a podcast with lavar burton the the reading rainbow star trek guy right and he said something interesting which is like i can code switch and go to a white barbecue but i don't think any of my peers who are white can code switch and go to my black barbecue. True. Right? Cuz they don't ha- I mean everyone in in essence everyone does code switch like you said 
you go home, you're a mom, you go to work, you're a certain person, you go home, you're a certain right. person. But I think racially code switching is something that as, as a as as a minority, you are hyper aware because you're oftentimes in the position of a lesser hierarchy in the social dynamic. You have to adjust yourself to whoever is in the position of power. I don't, and I like that's very well said again, but like the core, I don't even know if you're, it's unconscious, I think. Right? Uh, for you, you mean? I th- I don't know. I think mm. it is, I don't know for, but I think it's unconscious. Like you, you're right. When I, uh, so it is very uncomfortable. Like I have a lot of Indian friends I've made here. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I have an event where I have a couple of my friends from other, you know, my Caucasian friends come in, there is, like after a while, I guess once they get to know each other, that thing vanishes. But when you are a white person in a majority brown surrounding, there is a discomfort. Right. Right. But the, as a brown person walking into a white, I don't have that discomfort. No. Well, you well you had to, you're forced yes. just by necessity of being a minority. You have to learn how to navigate that space. Absolutely. You and it, I think, I don't know if I realized that I was doing that because for yeah. the longest time I thought like somebody had written something that, you know, about how, it's a white man's world. And I'm like, not really. It's like pretty just. And then it's as pretty, you... It's pretty just. Like the system is pretty just, oh, right? Yeah. Like in my mind. Yeah. And but as you start living in the system, yeah. because you want to believe it to be just, yeah, right? Yeah. But as you start living in it, you see these variances. Yeah, yeah. And you see how things play out. For um, like, you know, for you to be validated and also for you to be validated, not only as an artist or anybody, like... Somebody big has to validate you for the smaller people to validate you. Mm-hmm. Right? So I don't know. Like if you get a recognition in a certain aspect, then you become of value. Mm-hmm. But till you don't get that, nobody wants to take a risk on you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if if I'm I'm sure if I was a white artist and a white male, that risk is much easier for people to take. Mm-hmm. Right? And I don't understand how that happens. Maybe it's happening in people's subconscious if it really happens if i'm and sometimes you feel that am i overthinking things yeah i will i think it's hard to get into the minds of people those people i would say it's because of the power structures and who's in position to choose right right and so if you're you know whatever instance that you're thinking about but in terms of validation but if the prize if the museum the gallery is run by a group of white people they just would gravitate to what they know best right right and you see this you know sort of like sort of like what happened with like the Carnegie Museum of Art 2020 right it took them forever to get a show that was sort of promoting black artists black artists and you know I talked to some people and there was a lot of pushback from a mostly all white you know board and they just weren't interested. And there's no reason for them to be interested because they live in a, a bubble. Bubble, <laughs> right? You know, right? And yeah, I yeah, I think there is like this. It's like, and it's very sad to say that we are living in the 21st century and we have us and them. I know, and, we're we're in, right? You know, in quotes, a melting pot. Right, but like I think this is the I would have imagined like when growing up. And maybe it was like a romanticized view of the world. But growing up, I was surrounded by all brown people. But I had a free flow world where everybody is like, you know, you can 
there is really no country borders you thought this when you were young yeah, yeah i've always like that's my vision that you can just navigate wherever you want to be yeah. and then you are that like you know you just navigate into these things you learn from each other yeah. which is pretty similar to going to these rural places yeah. where the dialect is different in each part of india people are different food is different clothes are different and i just did navigate through that and i probably i was an outsider but i never saw myself as an outsider because i just kind of navigated that became the insider in my mind mm-hmm. and i think that for it's a rude shock because that doesn't happen when you move you to, to the to west the, yeah or when you like you know like there there's like there is a definite hierarchy whether and it's hard to accept and it's like something i and i'm glad like you know more people are voicing it because then it's and i think a lot of times maybe it's not even i think people are not even aware that they are doing the, like the they that they have these hierarchies for people right like they are not aware of their or they don't want to be aware they they want to th- i mean especially right. especially in the arts where everyone's quote unquote liberal and progressive right. you only have to just look at like who's on the board what artists are being chosen right. who, who they want to represent you know who are the faculty who are the student representation what are those right. what are those numbers and um you only have to look at that to quickly realize that it's a sort of i guess want for diversity but then yes. it's i think the want for diversity is only to uh, i think fulfill quotas yeah and to be to be able to get that grant so that you have this but there is not really a true want for diversity right because right. i think people i de- you know a lot of white people think kind of like what you were talking about they don't want to point out race right, right? like i mean so many times, you know, it's funny just talking to white folks. They're so afraid to say, "Oh, like um, describing someone," and then they obviously admit like they're black, they're right. Latino, they're right. they're Asian or whatever. And then like you have to pull down, it's like you know, where the, they're uh, uh, right, they're, they're they're black, right. you know, and right. they like have to whisper it, right. Um, and, and I think that also applies to them uh, seeing the world. They want to be colorblind, so they don't want to talk about race and then but i think when you are colorblind you are when somebody says i don't see color that's a sound of that's racist. very problematic because yeah. i know you don't want to see color yeah. but you have to see color because color, you and i want you to see color there yeah. is a difference and i want you to be i think what is problematic is like that in certain settings within my artists group of friends when you're talking about color people don't are not comfortable with that yeah. conversation because they don't want to get there but the problem is that when you are choosing your clothes you're seeing color yeah. so you are seeing color yeah. at every point in time and, and and people of color are forced to see color because they, right. they they see the systems of power that exist that put them in a position of oftentimes you know a lesser position right so they're forced to see that color and they're chosen and put in that position because of the color of their skin and i don't know like uh, when you become aware of color right so so in color again color of the skin has so many connotations mm-hmm. in different parts of the world and color so in and, india, also, and also colorism also affects absolutely. that absolutely so in india being fair is being more beautiful mm-hmm. than being dark but where does that stem from it stems from the colonization 
of uh, the British, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. If you really go back in history, mm-hmm. and they were the one, like they gave better paying jobs to lighter skinned Indians. Mm-hmm. They were lighter skinned. They were in a position of like in a superior position and a yeah. position of power. So I think that has been like ingrained in people's brain, and then it takes Absolutely. on its own. But it has nothing to do with race, and uh, so the well, color. They, I think they work in conjunction, though. Right. Right. They do. They, they, they do in, they because there is. And uh, so my project, Colonized Mind, which I haven't done, but I'm proposing because that was what is what is my label, mm-hmm. the one that's on the skin color. Uh, it stemmed from again an, a class project that my daughter did. And she came in, I don't know which grade, I think it was pre-K or kindergarten and told me that, you know, what is my skin color? And I got really upset. I'm like, why are you worried about your skin color? Like, you know, or she said, why am I not peach skinned or something like that? Why is she not what? Peach. Peach. Right. Mm -hmm. Why isn't she peach? So I I found it a little disturbing because I was like, you know, because growing up in India, there was no discussion around color, but I am growing up in a society which is predominantly brown. Right. Yeah. So, so I kind of. She's already internalized that peach color or white skin is better. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I, so I started talking to her and I said, what do you, what are you doing? I wanted to ask the teacher and they said, oh, they're doing portraits and self portraits Mm -hmm. and they have to choose the color of their skin. And then when you look at the color of the skin, none of them are represented of colors of any skin. Not, nobody's peach. Right. 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 But, uh, but peach is the. Peach was also like the color that's most picked up. Yeah. And, and then and it's also the paint color, right? It's if the you, color. If you get, right. if you get like a acrylic paint, right. like you, you can get skin color right. like peach or right. pink right. for some reason. But it's interesting because the, uh, so my, for my daughter, that was the epitome of like, she wanted to be peach and she would always pick up like the, the, the dark color or the tan. And it was an interesting because I'm like the range. I know from the perspective of the school, it's great that they are trying to promote that you're all unique. You all have different skin colors. So for me, I think two things are problematic when you're introducing at that age where they don't even see these differences, really. At that age, kids do not see these differences. They think they are the same. Right. So you're introducing it at that age. B, you're introducing diversity in five blocks. Right. There are these five columns you give them and say choose your color so instead if you were to do the same project and you wanted them to make their self-portraits how would you say why don't you mix your own skin color oh they couldn't mix the color no this was like uh, cut they're like brown sheets of paper you know like the whatever craft paper yeah in different five six colors that are given the olive the yellow the peach the brown the dark brown Mm -hmm. and the tan and they are just left there and then you have to choose your skin color i don't Mm -hmm. even think there's so many variations in the tan and the brown Mm -hmm. there's dark brown and then there's yellow and there's (laughs) olive and there's peach and there's one more color maybe in the middle but it's kind of interesting so i had to have this conversation that nobody is really peach mania nobody is and i had these discussions but i i really became like and and when i did this project the other thing which was interesting is i did it for the not white collective and i hung these five six skin colors just like hides like yeah. meat almost and when people would walk up to them and they are not realistic colors they totally look painted on they are meant to look like olive and yellow i had uh, an asian friend of mine Taiwanese friend she walked up 
and she said i'm supposed to be yellow take a picture next to me, uh, my yellow skin because i'm like yeah you're really yellow yeah right and then but then i also saw people navigating in between and saying i'm lighter than this but i'm darker than this and i'm like it is important right like whether we say it or not that skin color is impacting us somewhere yeah. where we are paying a lot of attention to it even if it's here because when you are choosing so my aim is really to do thousand skin colors and just have them in a room like a hide and like let people walk through them yeah and have a way for them to have a way for this internal conversation that is going on in them to be penned down in some sort of a way but that how when you walk through it you don't as a white person i don't know if i walk through it i'm not white so but as a white person if i walk through it would i go towards would i want to be and what does it make me feel mm-hmm. i think there's a lot of emotions that come up which we don't realize and i didn't realize till i put it out there then but when i saw people interacting with it because i'm really interested in that aspect of it i was like oh that is so interesting that there is this it's so important for us to belong here or there right. or where we think yeah. it's right yeah well because yeah. we're trying we're as we're oftentimes trying to place ourselves right because right. we have to place ourselves somehow right and it's tough right like you don't know where and i think it's i don't know and i wonder if these same conversations go on in other communities like i know they do in the not white community you want to quickly just talk a little bit about that so it's amazing it's a group of 14 uh women and uh come from different areas uh different parts of the world and uh, they identify as not white and what it means is that they i i think we don't and i think i should read like if you want to know what exactly it is i should oh you have art, you, you, as a group have you have an artist statement yes. or a group statement yes do you want to yeah share sure that? yeah go okay. ahead read it so we have like a statement and i had sent it for so we are a group of 14 women artists elevating the stories of others those of us who do not fit neatly in the consensus boxes neatly in color, cultural categories we are by multiracial cultural immigrant or descendants of immigrants mm-hmm. over the past year we have met to share to question to investigate dig deep into what identity is within and without the construct and context of white not in skin color but as a system of oppression a system we do not align ourselves with oh, yes. in lieu of police brutality calls for bans for walls we hope to provide an artistic platform for difficult discussions on the complexities of cultural identity in america to move us towards humanity hmm. but this is but i think like it is it's all about the white oppression like or the systemic oppression right. right so it's not putting pointing fingers at a person but i'm like within white communities are they having these discussions about race and i don't know i don't think so so well there isn't that nuance right right i think that's oftentimes the most difficult thing about it right and what else i mean i also think this the you know the system that is in place oftentimes because that system constructs communities and institutions that are largely white you wouldn't think about it you're not forced to think about it right so you and so even if you wanted to discuss it you are oftentimes i've noticed at least within the institutions that i've been which the system that of power that puts people in place allow constructs a white community where you don't have to think about it. Right. I mean if you and even if you wanted to discuss it 
you haven't allowed the people who you are talking about to speak because they aren't even in the room. Right. You know? Right. So there's only so much that that conversation can go forth. Absolutely. And I think, uh, like, coming to that point, so it was a very interesting, I, we were in Austin and I took an Uber. And the Uber driver was this really amazing guy. He was like a microbiologist and very, very, like, from a very well-to-do family. So he said, you know, as a white male... I have a privilege, which I, which I, I know I have a privilege, but I don't see it. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing for him. I wanted to clap him and like, uh, like commend him for just saying that because he said, I don't see it. But so he said, then he was telling me about how his family is really Republican and hardcore conservative. And he said, I had a Muslim roommate and he was doing nothing for Christmas. And I told him, come on over. Why don't you come to us? And he said, and that's the first time I saw racial uh, biases at play because I saw how my family interacted with him. Mm. And he he said it was like an amazing, like an eye opener for me. Mm -hmm. But I, I thought that him like just recognizing the fact that he doesn't recognize it and admitting it was pretty powerful because I'm like half the time people are like, because I'm often told when I say, you know, it's always difficult when you come from another, they're like, you shouldn't have any difficulty. You're exotic. And I'm like, I'm not a fruit first and foremost, <laughs> but yeah, thank that. you for that. Yeah. But, but I think, I don't think you get into things because you're exotic. And when you say that you what are you diminishing mean? my work. What do you mean get into things? Like get into like any show, mm. get into, get any, any, whatever, because you're exotic. And when you say that, because a, I'm not exotic to begin with, but if you say that, then you're diminishing the value of my work because you are placing my work within the realms of exotic, like you're exoticizing yeah. my work. And that's why it's important. As opposed to the work. As opposed to the work. Mm-hmm. And that I think is uh, like, I think it's more of a slap on my face than calling me an Indian, a person of Indian descent or Indian or mm. asking me where I come from. Yeah. So I find that really like disturbing because I'm like, it annoys me like yeah. because it just twinges, it takes the pleasure out of what you got. Yeah. You're happy about it. But then there's this element which yeah. makes you wonder that, oh, is that how you view me? Right. And I'm not sure how, what the jurors really saw, whether they, I, you have no idea, right? What goes on behind the scene, whether they know who you are, whether they don't know who you are. But it's an interesting thing when people say that you're like, hmm. But it's, it's complicated because you also know, you also play up that card. Right. I do at least. Right. It's just like, or at least you don't want, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Cause you, you, you also know there's this want, I guess, for filling a quota. Right. And so you try to also play your cards to fit in that, to fit in that, knowing that they might choose you, but you also don't want to be chosen for that. Right. Right. I mean, like, you know, like my, my artist statement, uh, talks about my Chinese American, identity i looked at your your website and it talks about it which i recently changed no i recently changed it to right talk about it right and so because i didn't ever talk about it and i'm like i need to like because i think it's the need of the hour right you need to identify and i think also like i kind of i think the reason i started talking about it because i started understanding the differences that really do exist Mm. 
which I think I was blind to. For the longest time, I was like, oh, I don't know what people talk about. Like, yeah. in I my think, mind. Right, right. You've been treated nicely. You don't. Yes. You, you didn't see a bias. Right. And, yeah. and when I'm not treated nicely, I feel as I am walking in, it's my job. It's not, it's my fault. Like, you know, yeah. you do the blame game. So if yeah. I go into a store and you are rude to me because... And many times, you know, as a you person... You place blame somewhere else. You place it on yourself that, mm. oh, I didn't go. Like, I should have said, talked All like right. this. You I should have done this. Or I should have... Not even nice. I should have gone in like this. I should have mm. been more articulate. I should have been more clear in what I was saying. I should have conducted myself like that. But you're always, like, judging yourself when you are... And I think... Which is wrong, right? Because I, if I was... A white person, I can just walk into a store and no matter what, and I'm like part of the system, mm-hmm. but I'm not part of the system. And I think the more aware I'm getting of it and I, so I've never played that card really till now. I've never in my statements ever mentioned, but now I have started. I like changed it. Yeah. And I think when did I, I think I changed it last year or something uh-huh. because I'm like, you know, I need to have that because I am a transatlantic artist. Yeah. I am, I am from another part of the world and that identity does play into my work. Right. And uh, that's who I am. And I have to embrace that also. But it's a, it's a very delicate, yeah. like you said, it's a delicate balance, uh, balance of right? playing like, the system, but also not. Wanting to diminish your own worth. Right. But, and But isn't that sad that you have to play the system? Yeah. Like, which is which is a problem, right? right? Yeah, you have to play a system because... The like, system ta- won't... Uh, you are not part of the system. Yeah. Or you'll never be part of the system if you don't play it. Mm-hmm. And I was told, quote unquote, by a curator uh, who said, your work is fucking awesome, but you're Indian. So, well, bec- and what is why? Why were they saying that? And so, sh- like, uh, so the, the whole conversation was coming from like as a piece of advice. And I really value this person, so I did not like it. Was like you know some things that are sto- told to you, you know they are told in good faith, right? Right. And they are told because so so the whole thing was that you know when people are looking, they are looking like you know your identity plays into it. And no matter how much I ignore it, the identity is very much an aspect of my work. Even if you walked in and my work was just there and you could not make out what my identity was, but for the person who's putting the work in there, my identity matters. Mm -hmm. Whether it matters in filling the quota or whether it matters because they don't want to put me in there, either way it matters. And that is problematic. And I'm like, so I'm like, but then you have to fit into the system and say, oh, I am South Asian. So therefore I need a space which is within the South Asian. And that's the same thing. And I think, and that's the same problem that I feel is happening with like black art, right? Like, because it's like, you are just putting it in a in in this box and not letting it be part of the system. But then at the same time, that's really important because otherwise that's not seen. Yeah. So there are these two parts of it. Like because if it's not going to be seen, then you need it to have its own voice. Right. So and that is like it's I don't know if it's complicated, but I'm like that needs to be fixed. Yeah. Because why do we need to be put in boxes? Like why can't you see work? And, you know, it's the same thing between, I think, men and women. There are these differences. So it goes on and on. So how many, how many times do you want to change your, what do you have to change in you? Yeah. And why should you? Right, right. 
more than anything else. Yeah. Why do you have to adapt to that system? Right. And uh, and and as an like as an artist who was who started practicing here and has never shown in India, I face the same sort of thing. I think like it's hard for me to navigate the Indian art system, mm-hmm. like because the system is different. It works differently, and I really don't know how it works. Yeah, and it's hard to be living outside of that system. And I think that system will validate you when this system. So you're playing these games. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh, you're basically nowhere because you're being bounced around or you're bouncing yourself in these two, two worlds. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So I think that's why if you look at a lot of like South Asian artists over a period of time, like even Kusama, for example, uh, I was reading up a little bit about her. You do go back to embracing your own roots. Like, you know, not that you ever gave them up. But you just were working as a person of, as an American, but then you have to work as an American of Indian descent, Chinese descent, Japanese descent, whatever descent, right? Because that's how you can fit in. Right. And that's very tragic. Yeah. And also going back to um, you talking about your identity and your artist statement, at least for me, I think it's important because if you don't say it, then someone else will say it for you. And right. oftentimes they're wrong or, yeah, I mean, oftentimes they are wrong, just flat out. So you, by at least putting it into words as the source, as the most knowledgeable source about yourself. Exactly. Uh, you know, you are claiming it for your own. Absolutely. So no and one, I think you have to claim it because it is your identity, right? Mm-hmm. And because it's your identity, so many times you don't claim it because you take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But then you're living in a society where they don't take your identity for granted. Like, I don't... Yeah. It's complicated. It's, it's, it is complicated. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was going to say something and I again like had a blank moment, but yeah. So yeah. Do you ever imagine, do you ever throw away works because you're running out of space? <laughs> no. You're, 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 you're a hoarder? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a hoarder. Yeah. And I'm like, I haven't, uh, I have thrown away some work and I kind of regret it. I'm like, oh, that would have been cool to do this with now. Yeah. But because I use a lot of recycled material, I have given myself the license to recycle my own work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I am allowed to use my own work in another project. Right. So I might do one thing with this and then I, I'm like, oh, this would be cool with that. So I kind of make other iterations of the, like reuse my own. Right. I'm curious. I only ask because I've had to constantly throw things away just because I've been going to different locations, like you know, all the works I did in LA to apply to grad school, I threw them away because I just couldn't transport them. Right. Um, and most of the stuff were recycled materials or I'd go to um, yard sales or whatever and just buy, you know, quote unquote junk right. that I tried to refurbish and make. But uh, I've, you know, I think that was also part of the reason why I kind of started making videos because I didn't have to. I didn't have to feel bad Throw. throwing things away right. and also investing material because even though they're all, a lot of times they're recycled, oftentimes there is an element of it there that you have to spend either time or money on. Absolutely, right? it's never. It's hard to just do a purely recycled right piece, right? right. Either you know, in your case, the na- the cost of the nails, right? Um, you know, it's just it. Or even the paint for the plastic the paint, assemblages, right. right? Right. So the toys. So the money is get is somehow being inserted right. into these recycled materials. So 
So my my thing with that is my like a lot of people say you know you should learn to throw work and I'm like I would instead of throwing it I would rather give it to somebody and loan it because then if I want it back at some point I have that ability to say yeah. oh now I have the space right. I can have it back right and they can enjoy it for right. that little time but, but you're also lucky because you have the space I I I don't I don't right. at the moment I don't really have a space or want to pay for storage right for for no it things. adds up but yeah. everything adds up and like nobody. It's interesting because uh, sometimes when you're applying for things, it's always money to apply for things. Uh-huh. But the artist is responsible for transportation, so you have to again pay, and the artist is responsible. So I'm like, <laughs> if your work is non-saleable, yeah, then how do you navigate it? It's yeah. tough. And then transporting of materials, transporting of the piece, right? So because all of that, like, and and also from an outsider world, because I have these two worlds, I also. Um, kind of tread within my art community and the not non art community. In the non art community's eyes, you they see you. I think it's taken now. They don't, but initially they see you as a hobbyist of sorts. The non art community. The non art community. Mm-hmm. Very often they think artists have like this. They just do things, and I'm like, there's a lot of work, and a lot of times I'm told, oh, you have a flexible schedule. We have to. I'm like my schedule is not at all flexible because I have the flexibility, yes, but then I have I'm totally inflexible when I have something to do, right? The flexibility disappears, and then I have to just kind of retreat back into this world and ignore all other worlds. So it's a very uh, and that's why when my kids say we want to be artists, I'm like no. They do. They do. <laughs> okay. They used to, and I'm like, no, you should do this. You should do because it's. I think you don't want. It's a hard. It's hard to be an artist. Well, it's like you said, very lonely, or it usually is lonely. Right. Uh, I think that's also why a lot of people want to go into teaching because right. you can sort of be forced to interact with people. Right. That's related to art. Right. As right. opposed to um, doing a job that's not related to your artwork, and oftentimes. That's that can be less interesting or not as mentally fulfilling. Absolutely, and then you have to be persistent and yeah. persevere, right? Like yeah. you have to. Nothing can happen, but you have to keep making the work if you think it's important. Mm-hmm. But then many times I question why am I doing it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't have. I don't. I don't want to give myself another choice because I love it so much. But there are these questions that keep coming. That why am I even bothering with it? Yeah. Does it matter? And then some little light happens, and then you're like, "Yes, it matters, right?" Yeah. But you ha- need those constant uh, validations, or I don't know, like something, some motivation to keep going. Mm-hmm. And it's tough, but it. I think it's like the most rewarding thing. Like I just. Oh yeah, it's lucky to be able to, you know, for your job to be the thing that you love. Right, and I think it's a privilege to be an artist. Like if you can, and I have to. Say that I've only been able to do this because I have support from Amit, and he's support. Yeah, he supported me for the last. And I, my goal was that okay, if you can support me for five, like for five years, and then I have to. This is my own internal internalized support system. Is that oh, if you can support me for these many years, then I have it has to take off on its own in some way or the other. And I think. Uh, Even though the paintings, I don't make it with the view of selling them, and they sell, and I love it because then I can do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So it funds back into this. So, I mean, even if I even out, I'm like at this point, I'm fine. I don't pay myself. That's also fine mm-hmm. for me. But I need to kind of keep doing what I want to do. 
So, yeah. It's tough, <laughs> but it's fun. You have anything else you want to add? Uh, you miss anything? No, I don't think so. We got everything. So I was right. Like, um, there was an interesting thing which I wrote and I would like your... So we were talking about what it means. What what would you dream of? Right? Like, so what, 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 do, you, what do you dream of in the future? What would your dream look like? Oh, was like? my five-year plan? No, like for me, like uh, I was like thinking about what, what, like, so similarly, what would your dream be? Like if you had to dream of this one thing, mm. what would it be? Like if you imagined whatever, for me, I wrote like something, it is that, um, so my dream is to be free of borders mm. and uh, where I'm no longer defined by an identity, mm. but, and I can exist freely and navigate in and out of different identities and, uh, and I dream of a day when my borders don't define me, but I define my borders as I navigate through them. I think that second line says it better. Mm -hmm. But I, so we were like doing this exercise as of what, if you don't think what you are, what your identity is, then how would you want it to be? Mm. And I think it would be great if the whole world, and I don't know if it is possible with this, Everywhere with this alt-right movements It'll that are going It'll take a while. <laughs> it, I don't know. I, I don't know. I got really pessimistic about it. Yeah. Like, but then I'm like, there's hope. Yeah. When there's, when things go really down, then they yeah. really, they erupt. Yeah. And something better comes out of it. This so is, there is. Uh, I, yeah. I think this is like the last, the last hurrah by. The hopefully. People, the people who are uh, shouting the loudest right now. Right. Well I, well, I think, I mean, there'll always be problems with, you know, mankind, humankind, right. or problems with humankind. Um, but the people who are shouting the loudest now, I think, are shouting because they realize that they are slowly becoming the minor minority. Right. And yeah, and it'll change in a couple of years. It will change. The uh, Yes. So I, I, yeah, I don't know where the future will take us, but hopefully to yeah. a brighter place. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. I think that'd be a good place to end. Yes. Thank you, Sarika. <laughs> Thank you. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.